Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Amen. We come to God's Word as a people who believe what we've just sung. Would you open your copy of God's Word to Hebrews? Hebrews in chapter 11 is where we find ourselves. We've been spending uh, most of this year thinking through uh, this wonderful, uh, really, sermon recorded for us here. And we are on page 1008. If you are using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a copy, let me encourage you to grab that. As I'll reference the Word of God frequently as we study together. Hebrews in chapter 11, we're going to be reading verses 23 through 31 today. 23 through 31, Hebrews chapter 11, this is God's word. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue to think on you, as we continue to delight in the God who has taken our sin, not in part, but the whole, as we continue to long for the day when our faith will be made sight, Father, we recognize there is a need of endurance. There is a need of endurance from this moment to that moment. And we cannot do this on our own, so we pray your word would strengthen us, that it would place deep within our hearts and minds pillars of truth that by faith we cling to and stand upon. Help us to this end, we pray. We pray not only for ourselves, but we love to pray for the the body of Christ across the city and nation and the world. We pray for Funston Baptist Church this morning. Thankful for this congregation in the, the outskirts of our county in Funston. Lord, we pray for their congregation and their pastors. Lord, we ask that you would use them. Use them in a mighty way, not only to Proclaim your word, Father, but to raise up people that will be sent out to other locations and other states and other nations. Father, we pray for First Baptist Church of Jefferson, Ohio. We ask that you would be with this congregation. Lord, a a very old congregation, Father, that is in the midst of uh, kind of a renewal right now because of the faithful teaching of your word. And we pray for them that they might be a witness there in Ohio. We pray for their well-being. And Father, we pray for the Chaja of China. We ask that you would be with this people group, Lord, uh, knowing that in China right now there is much persecution and 
hatred against the name of Christ. But Father, how beautiful is it that you thrive in those very situations. That your gospel sounds forth, your kingdom is advanced. And we pray for these people that they would hear the truth of Christ and they would come by repentance and faith to you. Pray you would send people from surrounding countries to them to announce the king and what he has accomplished. Father, maybe even sending one of us one day. Finally, we ask now that we might see the glory and worth of God so that we would choose to suffer with Christ and participate in sin. We ask these things knowing you are a gracious and giving God. We ask it for your glory, for our joy, and for the exaltation of Christ's name we pray. Amen. What might be a person's favorite or least favorite word in school? For me, it was the word tests. I didn't like them. What might be a person who is pretty comfortable in their setting? What might be their least favorite word? Trials. What might be a recovering addict's least favorite moment? Temptation. See, often in life we walk around with a distaste for things like tests, trials, and temptations. I mean, who likes to endure through such difficulties and struggles like these types of things? Yet, if we actually slow down, I think we might see something that we actually do believe test trials are profitable. Right? We, we, we don't necessarily understand if something's genuine, if something's real, unless they endure what? Test trials and stand fast in temptations. Let me ask you a question. How do you know when a friendship's real? When they're with you through the hard times. It's how we see that something's real, that something's genuineness. Is when there's a test or there's a trial, there's a temptation, and that person doesn't go running to something else. There's an element of loyalty involved in that friendship. Not only that, we could say this about sports fans as well, right? How do you know they're true fans, right? We put that little true in front of it. When they're there for long periods of time, even when the team's not winning. See, we actually believe that tests and trials are something good. As long as they're not in our own life. You know, tests and trials reveal that something is real or genuine. In reality, we can actually say that these types of people are better as a result of the test and trial. Friendships are, are better because they were together through hard times. They're not just genuine and real, but they're better as a result of it. Shelly and I's marriage is better, not because we've had a perfect time together, but because we've endured for 20 years through the tests and trials and temptations. We love each other more. Our, our marriage is more solidified because of the tests and trials. And what if I made the argument that God actually saw fit to show the genuineness of things through these very tests and trials? This is God's design. This is part of the fabric he's woven into creation. That, that we all can understand something is genuine and real, but also so that we might experience something as sweet through tests and trials. And today we're going to see in God's word how he uses tests and trials to solidify the faith of his people. To show us if you really do believe the things you claim to believe. But also it makes the experience with God all the more sweet as we walk through these tests and trials. We're in this long chapter where we've seen 18 different statements of by faith. We saw in verses 3 through 7 that faith is seeking to please God. We saw last week or yesterday, not yesterday, last week was the right word, in 8 through 22 that faith is focused on the future reality of God's promises. 
And we're going to see this idea today in 23 through 31 that faith trusts God especially through suffering. Especially through suffering. If you're a note taker, we basically three main points today. We see in verses 23 and 27 that faith grants us the courage to fear God over man. Faith grants us the courage to fear God over man. Then we see in verses 24 through 26, faith chooses to suffer with Christ than sin. Truth phases to rather suffer with Christ than sin. And finally, in our closing verses, we see that faith obeys God even in the face of uncertainty and potential ridicule. So let's look at God's word together as he might sharpen us in our faith in this moment. Look again with me at our opening verse, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. We need to remember that in the book of Exodus, right? The book of Exodus is where we're introduced to this character in Scripture, Moses. And we're introduced first into the reality that there's a people who are now in Egypt, Israel. God's people are there. And they've grown over these years, right? They're, they're a massive population of people. And, and the Pharaoh, who is like the king of the land, he's a little afraid. And he says, man, they're a really big a number. Unless they go join other nations and, and take over our land, we need to put them under persecution and pressure. So much so that he even says, you need to kill every male that's born. And then you have this scene in Exodus where we see Moses' parents, by faith, do not put him in the Nile, but instead for three months keep him hidden until they could do no more, and then they put him into the Nile and preserve his life. But what's interesting is the way this particular text highlights this. Look at again what it says. He was hidden for three months because they saw he was beautiful. I don't know about you, but every time I've ever seen someone have a child, they never say their child is not beautiful. I mean, everybody thinks their kid is what? Beautiful. So is this like parental pride that preserved their faith? I don't know. It's one of these interesting words that's that's not used frequently in Scripture. But it does mean something. It does mean something unique here. I think it means something a little bit more than physical beauty. And we know this to be true because of Acts 7. Again, we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture here. So really quickly, flip with me to Acts chapter 7, where we see Stephen give an account of this very thing. And he helps us to understand a little bit of what's going on here. Acts in chapter 7. Stephen is... um, Not Romans. Acts chapter 7. Stephen's speech right before he's stoned to death, and he's speaking about the kind of the storyline of the people of Israel. He says this in in verse 20. Look at it with me. It says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. That's not in the original Exodus text, this concept or this idea. And so one of the things I think we can see that it doesn't mean just mere physical beauty, but some sort of divine favor was evident to to Moses' parents when they saw him. It appears that they saw something, some spiritual potential in a sense. Yes, it could, could be reading in too much to the text, but I think Stephen does give us this glimpse. It appears that the parents of Moses saw something either in his image-bearing of God, a.k.a. all people who are human, that provoked them by faith not to put him to death, but it's more likely in some way that they knew there was a unique plan for this young baby, so they protected him out of faith in God. And regardless out of the exact meaning of this word beautiful, the author of Hebrew, he's teaching us something about Moses' parents dare to do. They dare to trust God in the midst of what? An overarching edict by the king. 
I mean, they knew. They knew if they didn't obey the king, they could be put to death. And interesting, we're taught in this section of Scripture today, and not only this one, but one we'll look at in just a moment, that, that sin is not always choosing things like pleasure or hatred. Sometimes sin is actually choosing the path of least resistance. Think about that for a moment. I think sometimes in America, that's what we try to do. We try to choose the path of least resistance, the easiest, smoothest ways to get things accomplished. And one of the things I think we see highlighted for us here is this reality. Moses' parents had the option of obeying the edict or obeying God, which meant potential harm. And definitely some sort of resistance or hardship would come to them. And brothers and sisters, every day you're faced with the same type of decisions, the same type of choices and we make choices in a manner of typically of the, the path of least resistance. Maybe you know there's someone you need to go talk to. So you send them a text instead of a face-to-face meeting because that's the path of least resistance. And it's not heard properly, and in turn you sin. See, sin isn't always just choosing the wrong thing. Sin sometimes is choosing the path of least resistance when God has clearly given us a direction where to follow. When we do not intentionally seek ourselves to ask questions, to make sure we're displaying faith in God and not man. See, really one of the things we see here highlighted is this idea of the fear of man. We see it again in verse 27. Look at it again with me so we can tease it out and we'll think on a little bit more. Verse 27, we see it again. It says, By faith he, Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is what? Invisible. Hmm. Even more interesting is this, is this idea here. He says, I, Moses was, was able to see someone invisible and it gave him the physical, spiritual strength to endure in a moment. By faith, he believed something. This teaches us something about the fear of man and how we can begin to battle against it. Now, what's interesting is the fear of man is something we don't think about too often. And here's a fascinating idea that we must be considering when making daily choices we may choose the path of sin not because we desire that sin but because we desire not to be seen by others as goody two-shoes i love augustine he says this about there was this scene where saint augustine a, a early church father he was in a pear orchard and he had no desire for this pear that they were about to go steal but he did not want to be looked bad by his friends so he went and he stole the pear So sometimes what you have to wrestle with is sin isn't merely just doing the wrong thing. It's having the wrong motivation for why you do that thing. Looking for the path of least resistance. Fear of man is a deep dependence of the human heart to find approval or validation from those around us. Ed Welch in a wonderful book that says, When people are big and God is small, I encourage you to read it. It says, The fear of man is simply replacing God with man. See, we all struggle with this part of our human heart. Ask yourself, do you struggle with peer pressure? It's not just a teenage thing, is it? Do we struggle with peer pressure? Do we, do we struggle with esteem issues? Self-esteem is critical for you if, if you are struggling with an unhealthy favor or view of the favor of man. Does your life revolve around what people think about you? If you answered yes to any of these, you probably have an unhealthy fear of man. So, so what do we do? According to what Moses did, look there again at 27, what did he do? 
For he endured as he, he was able to stand up. He was able to hold fast to what the, the Lord had commanded, even in the anger of the king. And so Moses' parents the same way. For they saw him who was invisible. So how does a greater fear of God lead to endurance or perseverance? It does so by seeing the invisible God with eyes of faith. Think about it this way. One of the things that I remember my mom always telling me when I used to struggle with the cookie jar... She always made brownies, so it wasn't really, it was the brownie jar. She always made brownies. It was like every week there was brownies, and brownies is like my kryptonite. I love brownies, because she would intentionally not cook it all the way, so they were extra gooey. And she would say, now Josh, when you walk in the kitchen and you know it's not time to get us, just imagine I'm standing right there next to the brownies. Why would she say that? Because that moment I had a choice, right? I had to envision my mom and the discipline that would happen as a result of that or the pleasures of that moment of taking the brownie. And in in the same level, in some capacity, we too as adults, we have to train our hearts and our mind's eyes to see him who is invisible every moment of the day. We have to see him as more worthy of our obedience than the approval of those around them. Something within the matrix of your decision-making has to come to grips with the awesomeness of who God is. Is your God small? If your God's small, you will always struggle with a fear of man. Is your God incapable? Is he little? Is he not one whom you believe can do the very things he says he can do? Then you have a knowledge problem. So how do we work on that? A very practical way is to, when you're studying God's word, ask yourself this question. What character of God is highlighted here? It's a great question to ask yourself anytime you read the Bible. Here's the second question that's just as important when you're reading. If you want to grow in your fear of the awesomeness and beauty of who God is, why is this so much better than the character of man? These are two key questions I think that are pivotal when you want to grow in your knowledge and fear of God. Is I have to ask myself, what is this text telling me about the character of God and why is it so much better than man because what you're training your heart and mind to do in that moment is you're training to say God is always better God is always a little bigger God is always a little bit more awesome another wonderful way to increase this fear of God is by reading good books about the attributes of God a phenomenal one that I would encourage you to read is the knowledge of the holy by A.W. Tozer it's not a super big book. It's kind of, it's a little bit smaller. But it is great. I mean, when you read this book, you will not ever think God is small. What A.W. Tuzzer has done is he's collected in this very thin book all the glorious attributes of God. And literally this book, what it does is it fans within you the ability to be like Moses and to be like Moses' parents who always choose obedience of God over the obedience through the fear of man. So dads, maybe grab this book and use it over your table this next two months. Read it in the morning with your family and just choose one attribute and just sit in it. Just sit in it and talk about it. And when you go and you do something later with, hey man, think about this and fan this in each other, church. Members look to other members and say, what's something amazing about the awesomeness of God you've thought about recently? Because until we have a big view of God, we will never by faith exercise courage in difficult situations. So courage in our view of the awesome of God, they go together. 
They work in tandem. You see, one of the exciting things that a growing faith does in God and His future promises is it creates a courageous people. Not courageous like I'm willing to go, you know, march into the middle of an army, but courageous is I'm willing to just stand for what is good, true, and right in a world that doesn't do that. But still, but still this desire to be wholly devoted to God must only grow as our fear and delight of God's awesomeness increases. You see, loyalty is a mark of God's people. Loyalty is a mark of God's people. I, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, Melody has this little blankie that she's had since she was a baby. You know, it's this little elephant blankie, and it's, it goes with her everywhere. She can't go to bed without it. She needs to go in these different situations. If you, you know, when you're growing up, you probably had something like that too. My sister had a koala bear. You know, we all had those variety of things. She is loyal to that blanket. There's times we couldn't find it. I'm like, well, just take this blanket. It's just like, she's like, no, I've got to have that blanket. Her heart had grown in such affection for this blanket that she was loyal to it even when it was difficult. She wanted that blanket. There was loyalty there until something more shiny comes along. See, that's the, that's the reality of loyalty. Testing in our lives we have to be courageous by faith not to let the shiny things allure us away from the one who is truly the glorious one, the beautiful one. Loyalty is the character of a person that remains wholly, completely devoted to God instead of allowing the fear of man or the shiny things of this world to sway them from the path of devotion. But not only that, I love this next section. Look there with me at verse 24. As we see faith chooses to suffer with Christ rather than to sin. Verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he has grown up, he refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter. So again, you've got to be familiar with a little bit of the story of Moses. right? His parents didn't cast him into the Nile like it was told. Instead, they, pres- they kept him for three months until they were unable to. And then they, they built a basket and they sent him down the, the river. And she, he happened to come across Pharaoh's daughter who was bathing. And, and she took him out. She says, hey, it's a Hebrew child, and we're going to preserve him. And, and his mom was able actually to raise him till he was weaned. But then he was raised in Pharaoh's courts. For almost 40 years, he was raised in the highest, most glorious, most well-educated nation in this time. And so it says that, that here he was, by faith, refused to be called Pharaoh's daughters. But Why? Well, it says instead, what did he do? Look at verse 25. It says he chose rather to be mistreated with God's people than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What is the sin that he refused? What is the sin that he refused in verse 26? Well, it tells us. It says he considered reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now, you have to get in your mind. I don't think we can fathom the temptation that Moses had to endure here. In this season of history, there was very few nations that were like Egypt. Immense amount of wealth. And he had it every day. He had plush food. He had perfect environments. He had everything he could literally, there was nothing that his heart's desire that he could not have. So this isn't like it was, you know, choosing between living in an apartment or a home. No, this was like the palace or not the palace. This was everything you've ever desired or not. This was an immense amount of temptation that Moses 
was turning from. It appears the sin that he would be running from was the treasures of Egypt. But instead he says, I will choose the reproach of Christ. And this is just an interesting side note. Was Christ in Exodus? No. I mean, he is kind of hidden there throughout all of his reality. But he, there was no Christ in Exodus yet. Christ didn't come until much later. So what's interesting is the New Testament is making a claim about who Christ is. He is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament desires. All the promises find their, they're running down the track and racing to this person, Christ. And so the author helps us to see that by just using this language, the reproach of Christ. But what, one, one interesting thing I want to see, look there again with me at verse 25. Look at this phrase. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting what? Pleasures of sin. I want, to, I want to press on this for just a moment. One thing we must acknowledge is that there is pleasure in sin. We have to acknowledge this. See, God's people must never act like sin does not give pleasure. But to constantly remind themselves and others that it's temporary. That it's minuscule com- compared to the pleasures of the things of this world. So let me, let's ask this question. What would happen if we never acknowledge that sin does provide some element of pleasure? What would happen in the hearts and minds of the church? What would happen in the hearts and minds of our children and our friends that we're building relationships with? Well, one thing is it can create some very unprofitable conversations. I remember being told growing up that sin is just bad, and it's no bad, bad, bad. And then I got out from underneath my parents' shelter, and I tasted sin. I was like, that was pretty good. That wasn't bad. And, and, and in my heart, my mind, in that moment, I began to, like, did all the other things my parents teach me, was that true? Because all I ever heard about sin is it's bad, bad. And it is. It's, it's wicked. It leads to destruction. But sin is pleasurable. And we need to understand that. That it is pleasurable. It wouldn't be enticing to our hearts if it wasn't. But sin is also a liar in that it can satisfy you. Sin is also a liar in that it says it will continue forever because sin is temporary. See, I began to not understand the depths of my sin because I was not taught as I probably should have been that sin is pleasurable but it lies to you about what it will provide and here's the other big thing the other big thing if we don't think sin is pleasurable is that when someone comes to you know the Lord and and, and we don't have a category of helping them understand God they actually think they're running away from any sorts of pleasure and just running to stoicism They're running to this like, I can't smile, I can't laugh, I can't have a good time. Christians just don't have fun. Because fun is sin. That's boo-hockey. Christians have the most fun out of the whole people in the world because we're pursuing the greatest pleasure in the whole world. And if we don't have this category, and we're not talking in these kind of categories, we create some really unhealthy conversations with other people. God doesn't want stoics. God wants people says run towards pleasure and run towards the greatest pleasure and that's me. And the joy that I provide. So instead of learning the beauty of the scriptures instead we say well I just got to become hard. 
and not smile and not have a good time. Oh, shame on us if we do that. Think about the pleasures of sin this way. I had the privilege of being able to take my wife out to dinner on Tuesday or Tuesday night, maybe. Went to Jonas in Thomasville. It's one of our favorite places to go. The food is always really good. But you know what? I woke up on Wednesday morning and I didn't have the taste of Jonas still in my mouth. It was gone. It was, man, that night, it was great. I was like, mm. I mean, literally, you know, I could taste it a little bit later before I went to bed, but the next morning it was gone. The pleasure was only momentary, and that's what sin does. Sin might satisfy you for a small moment, but the next time you wake up, you're like, it's gone. And that's when it has you because it's, you got to come back for more. And it's got to be a little bigger and a little longer. But then you always wake up every day when chasing pleasures in sin with an empty taste in your mouth. And we learn today what Moses did, how he battled the pleasures of sin, is he didn't deny himself anything. He actually said, I'm running towards a greater pleasure. Think about it this way. This is so important. He chose, Moses was not denying himself the pursuit of pleasure, but instead he was reserving himself for greater pleasure. Look there at the text with me. Says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he says this. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Remember, he had the wealth of Egypt that was enticing him, but he said God was what? Greater wealth. He says he was looking to the reward. Christians, do you fight your sin by simply just self-denial? No. I'm not going to do it. And yes, there's true. There's an element of denying ourselves to follow God. But this text is teaching you that if you really want to fight your sin, you've got to pursue a greater joy. You've got to pursue a greater delight. You've got to pursue something that is more fulfilling and satisfying and lasting than the temporary, meaningless pleasures of sin. Fighting sin is not merely self-denial, but actually the pursuit of true, lasting joy. And that's found in God and his promises. This changes the way you think about it. I think this changes the language we even use when we're fighting sin. But first we need to ask ourselves this question. What is this reward that he was waiting for? This, This Hebrews chapter 11 has been using this language over and over again. He says in chapter 10, excuse me, in chapter 11 verse 10... Abraham, he says, he was longing for a city whose designer built it was God. In verse 16, it says, a, a heavenly country, better than the earthly one, of the, better than the one of this earth. Verse 35 says this, it says, through the resurrection we receive a better life. Verse 40 says, something better for us cannot be received until we all finish this race. And we'll get there next week. But all this means is that for those who are God's people in this room, there is something awaiting you that you have never tasted the full sweetness of. There's something awaiting you. There is a perfect society awaiting you. There is a God who will be among us. There is shalom, the peace of God. There is mental peace. I'm ready for that one. There's wholeness of my emotions and my physical body. That's going to be a good one too. Especially if you have to work out with Lewis sometimes. 
I want to. I want to keep going, but my body's saying, dude, you're old. And there's coming a day when that will not be. And so I push to that. I remind myself of that reward constantly. And that's how I fight my sin. I fight my sin by longing for what God has promised is mine in the new heaven and new earth. Are you right now battling a sin, whether it's pleasure, pleasure of the things of this world? What are the ways you're battling it? What Hebrews is teaching us that one of the ways you battle is not simply self-denial, but constantly considering and meditating on the full pleasures to be experienced with God for all eternity. If you're battling a sin of excess right now, whether it be food or TV or alcohol or sex, one way you can fight is to build this weapon into your category. It's creating a phrase or a saying that is pleading for the eternal pleasures of God and His glory to be more compelling to you in this moment than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Maybe as a family, go write one this afternoon. Hey, what's a phrase we can all use to remind us of the eternal, lasting, full pleasures of God? Simple phrase I use is, God, help me to desire you and your glory, which I will participate in all of eternity more than this sin right now. When I'm feeling enticed by the pleasure of sin, I just I pray that, I meditate, that God, make this a reality for you. Help me to remember the scriptures. Help me to know that. Help me to, to taste of the goodness of God that I've experienced and know that this is only a small portion of what's to come. And I can say no to this sin now because it's lying to me, but you're not. And it's good. And you battle sin that way. That's what Moses was doing. By faith, he considered the reproach of Christ more valuable than the fleeting pleasures of sin. And how amazing is our God that he doesn't simply say to us, can you imagine? I think this is sometimes how people think God is. Some people think God is simply saying, no pleasure for Christians. No pleasure for you. No pleasure for you. No pleasure for you. And the Bible says that is not the God of Scripture. God says you have immense pleasures and it's bound up in me and my glory. Now pursue that. We need to be the people who believe that to be true. And by faith we cling to, we fight our sin by saying, God, you've given us pleasure and it's bound up in you in the new heaven and new earth that's coming one day. And I can't wait for that day. And I will fight till my dying breath. So whether it's the fear of man that you're struggling with, whether it's the fleeting pleasures of sin that you're struggling with, we have to be a people who out of deep loyalty to the person and work of Jesus, we resist falling to the tests and temptations that show our faith to be real. Lastly, we see in verses 28 through 31. 28 through 31, look there with me. We see that faith obeys God's word even in the face of uncertainty and potential ridicule. Verse 28 says this, it says, By faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Here it seems that the author is speaking again of this obedience we, we studied just last week. The obedience to God's word. We saw it in Abraham, right? That God said, go to this mountain, and he went not knowing where it was. There was uncertainty. And here we see this interesting, though. Here it's more in relationship to salvation from death and the hope that it will be confirmed. You have to remember what the Passover was in Scripture. It's a feast that they were commanded to remember every year. It was one of the, the multiple feasts they were said to remember, remember, remember the Passover. 
Why is it the need to remember the Passover? Because all people need to believe something to be true. That there is judgment, but there is also salvation from judgment. Constantly. We remind ourselves of there is judgment due my sin, but praise God he has provided it not through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, but through the blood of the lamb, Christ himself. And it grants me the ability to obey in these moments. And can you imagine the scene there? There was no prescription of putting blood on the doorpost up to this moment. Can you imagine? I mean, they've had sacrifices. They've understood this animal sacrifice and and blood and these things, but they've never been told to apply it to anything. And they're told to take this blood and go, put it on your doorpost. And they're looking at Moses like, you want me to do what? You want me to paint my doorpost with blood? Seems a little odd. Maybe a little ridiculous. Yet by faith, Moses and the people, they obeyed, even when something seemed a little ridiculous. This idea of obedience in the faith of uncertainty and potential ridicule, it seems to repeat itself in the next three verses. Look there with me. Verse 29 says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as dry land. Again, here is the idea of a willingness to take risks. They're literally walking across the Red Sea. I mean, I can't even imagine the scene. How God is holding the water back and they're walking through as if it's dry ground. And they're trusting, they know the the army of Egypt is behind them, but they're believing God is one who both judges and saves. And they believe that God is a miracle-working God, and that he keeps his word. And by faith, they they walk through the Red Sea, and then the Egyptians, what, it crashes down on them. They were willing by faith to obey God's word, even when it felt uncertain. But not only that, I think this is probably one of my favorite scenes in the Old Testament. The generation had died and now Moses is in charge and they go to the first big city and they look at it and they're like, it's really big walls. And God's like, I got a great game plan for you. I want you to march around it seven times. Blow your trumpets really loud and it's yours. I don't know about you, I've never been in the military. Some of you have and you understand um, a good battle strategy and a not good battle strategy. To me, that just doesn't sound like a very good battle strategy. From the earthly perspective, it seems a little ridiculous. Hey guys, get in your full guard, march around, blow your trumpets, and then we're going to do it again every day. And on the seventh day, we're going to march around seven times, and when it blows, guess what? The Lord's going to make all the walls fall down, and the city's yours. This wasn't an empty city. This was full of people, I'm sure, were jeering them, laughing at them as they were standing on top of their wall, looking at these people, saying, look at these idiots, they're marching around, thinking that's going to give them the victory. But by faith, it says the people did this. The idea of obedience is related to something that maybe even seems a little bit ridiculous to those who watch you. And again, Rahab, same situation in verse 31. She did not perish with those who were disobedient because she friendly welcomed the spies. She had heard about this God, Yahweh, and what he was going to do. She wasn't sure if they... This God would accept her, not only a a foreigner, but a prostitute, but she believed and attached herself to these people. What I want to do is I want to just think on something on this. Think of God's character. Let's do the exercise I just encouraged us to do earlier in these four verses. So we're going to practice the very thing I commended you to build up that fear of God. What character of God is displayed here in these four verses? Faithful. 
I think a big one is that God is trustworthy over the schemes of man. Now, why is that better news than man's character of being trustworthy? Because man is only as trustworthy as he can make things happen. I, I can tell my daughters, girls, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a billion dollars by the time you leave your house. That's just an impossibility for me. I can't make that happen. But there's nothing that God says that he cannot do. He is always trustworthy because he can always do the things he says he will do. But I love this one too. I think this highlights that God loves to take the wisdom and strength of this world and simply make it look silly. This is what we talk about in 1 Corinthians, right? He takes the wise people of the world and shows them to be folly. He takes the strength of them and shows them to be weak. This is a display of what Hebrews is saying here. And if our God's that type of God, when he asks us in his word and by faith, we obey. But I also think it's interesting that throughout Scripture, God always puts his people in a position where obedience sometimes looks ridiculous. You see, if God doesn't show up, they look stupid. Time and time again in Scripture, he puts his people in this type of position. And you know what? He will do that with you in your life in certain situations. This is how he tests your faith. This is how he builds, according to James, steadfastness in your soul. Is he puts you in these situations where, by obedience, if he doesn't show up, you look kind of silly. But he's trustworthy. And he is one who delights to make the wisdom and strength of this world look silly by choosing people like us. Knowing that, what type of people is God creating in this section today? What type of people is God creating? He's creating pleasure pursuers. But people who find that pleasure in the fullness of God. But not only that, but he is creating a type of people whose hope becomes solidified and our character is strengthened in the face of trials and tests. Brothers and sisters, if you have not experienced this type of test or trial or temptation yet, it's coming. Every Christian will experience it. When you have to choose, do I believe the fear of man or the fear of God? Do I believe the pleasures of sin or the joy and pleasures of God? Do I believe keeping face or obeying God even if it seems a little ridiculous? You will have these tests in your life. The question is, do you believe God is who he says he is? Here's the problem. I can't do that. I failed so many times. I can never have the strength to do it. I can't. There's been time and time again in my life And if you're honest in your life where you have not stood up to the test. You have not stood against the temptation. You went to trial and you were found guilty of disloyalty. So what hope is there for us then? That's why I love the book of Hebrews. Because for ten chapters, he has been telling us about one who was faithful. One who always stood the test of time. One who was made like us in the flesh and was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. One who stood before trials and temptations 
And when our flesh was weak and we gave in, he did not. You see, you cannot do this on your own. The point of Hebrews is to show you the glories of Christ and the beauty of the better Christ. And then it says now, through Christ, in Christ, believing in Christ, now your faith is the faith that he's given to us and you can't endure. When we sing the song, Faithful, who can remember the last line we sing? What is it, Dave? You remember it, Callie? Your faithful heart you gave to us. That's yours, church. If you're in Christ, you have the faithfulness of Christ. You can fight temptation. You can stand on the trials. You can be tested and found pure because of Christ. It's yours. Live in it. Walk in it. Delight in it. It's yours, brothers and sisters. Remind each other the strength to stand in these moments does not come from self, but from Christ and Him alone. We need to remember that faith is showing loyalty, complete devotion to God, something we could never do on our own. But we have the promise of Scripture that because of Christ, I can now endure to the end. We must decrease. He must increase. In closing, I just want to think of one closing thought. It's not in the text, but as I was meditating on it this week, I began to think of this. In closing, know that no testing and no temptation is ever wasted. If you walk by faith. And here's what I mean by that. There are fewer stories of people who, like I think of all the missionaries of the faith. Think of all the people of old. And the reason I found joy in reading those stories is because they stood with Christ in the gap. You know, it's not the people who are the wealthiest that make Christ look beautiful. It's not the people who have everything they've ever desired that make Christ look glorious. It's not the people who have everything they've ever wanted that make Christ look amazing. It's the people who have the crappiest circumstances and yet by joy and faith in Christ, they endure to the end because they know their reward is coming. That's what makes Christ glorious. When we suffer the reproach of Christ for the joy of what's coming in the future. And that's you, church. You have the privilege, you've been called into this to be a display of the joy and eternal lasting pleasures of Christ by not having all the world offers now, but by enduring the hardships and tests and temptations. Showing God is most glorious. You are the way the invisible God is seen to the watching world. So by faith in Christ and Christ alone, walk in your daily tests your temptations for joy, and ultimately know your reward is coming because Christ has purchased it for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would take your word and you would plant it deep inside of us. Cause it to bear the fruit of obedience. Cause it to bear the fruit of eternal pleasure seeking in you and you alone. Cause it to bear the fruit of courage when king's edicts come down and we must obey. Father, may we be known as those who display the glory of Christ because we suffer with Christ, knowing our reward is coming one day. Until then, Lord, help us, we pray.
We ask this for your glory, for our joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.